0: Hey there, thanks for joining us here at Compass Church, where we are making God accessible to everyone. If you have any questions or wanna learn more about us as a church, head over to our website, compassbn.com. We hope this inspires you and gives you practical ways to live out your faith. Enjoy the message. Well, good morning, and thank you for joining me again. I am Chris, I'm a pastor at Compass, and we are in a message series called Icebergs, because icebergs have one really interesting quality because of the similarity and density to the water that they float in, 90% of an iceberg is actually hidden underwater, which makes it impossible to see. That's why the Titanic sunk. Religion has a lot of icebergs. There are things that we take for granted and things that we think we understand, but there's really a lot more under the surface. In fact, one of the most fascinating things about Jesus, both how he lived and how he taught, is the fact that he regularly uncovered these unseen things and he upset these sometimes long-held assumptions that people had about God and what it means to follow God. Now, we've been working through one of these challenging sections of teachings over the last few weeks, and if you've missed anything, I just need to tell you, it is worth getting caught up on our website or podcast, okay? So go to compassbn.com, go to the Icebergs Message Series, and just get caught up. But before we potentially crash into what is gonna be a pretty big iceberg today, Let me catch you up to speed on some of the key foundational elements that we have learned, that we've laid out, um, and that are going to be really important for us to remember as we continue on through the rest of this message series, okay? And the first thing is this, is that Jesus started by both affirming the value of the Jewish law, which is what we would call the Old Testament of the Bible, and he affirmed the impossibility of following it. I mean, he even said this. He said that if following the law, if doing the right things and avoiding the wrong things is your way to being good with God, that it's not going to happen. I mean, the apostle Paul backs this up in Galatians 2.16 when he says, Yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law, for no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. Paul's like, it's never going to happen. Okay, so that's the first thing. The second thing to remember as we continue on with the series is that Jesus believed that he fulfilled the purpose of the Jewish scriptures, all of those religious rules of the Old Testament, and that in doing so, he also redefined the rules for his followers. And he said it here, his redefinition in Matthew twenty two thirty seven. 37. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he wraps it up with this huge statement, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So under Jesus, loving God and loving our neighbor is now the new kingdom standard by which followers of Jesus are going to live, how we're going to think, how we're going to relate to the world. And this is all encompassing. So last week, we saw Jesus kind of begin to clarify how his new law should be lived out by his followers by giving some examples. And the example today is a doozy, okay? So get ready, because in Matthew 5:27 Jesus says this. He says, you've heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay, so that's big, right? And just like last week, Jesus is making a statement of law, and he's upping the ante. I mean, you have heard it said that you must not commit adultery, but I'm telling you that anyone who looks at a woman with the intent to lust after her has committed adultery in his heart. Now, that's a big jump. I mean, that's as big as saying that being angry with someone is the same as murdering them, but Jesus said it. And since he said it, we need to try and understand and apply it. And so, I think the main way that Christians have looked at this statement is in terms of sexuality or as a sexual ethic. So if having sex outside of marriage is bad and looking at someone else with lustful intent is the same, then we need to do everything we can to battle the temptation that comes with sexual desire, right? And so, since that's how the church has viewed this, the church has created these new rules based on a rules-based sexual culture, really, so that we keep from violating this command. I mean, we we wrote and read books like I Kissed Dating Goodbye that discourage dating or any real connection between young men and women. And we have things like the Billy Graham rule that won't allow an unmarried man and woman or married man and woman to be in the same room together without someone else there to hold them accountable. And we have rules at youth camp, where girls have to wear a one-piece swimsuit and girls can't wear shorts that don't touch their knees in order to prevent boys from lusting after them. So tall girls are just out of luck. But is this what Jesus was talking about? Do you think His plan was to make sure that girls' shirts aren't too tight and that they don't wear yoga pants in public? Did, he, did Jesus just want to make sure that men only look at and interact with women in certain church-approved scenarios? And, and then even in how this is kind of applied today, it almost seems as if we're saying that men are powerless in the face of the overwhelming sexual lust that exists within all of us, and that women are somehow responsible for that lust that men are feeling. Is that the takeaway Jesus really wants us to get out of this? And I think to understand what Jesus is really saying, we have to understand literally what Jesus is really saying. We need to understand both adultery and lust in the context that he was talking about them in. Okay, so first, what is adultery? Most people would probably say that adultery is having sex with someone outside of your marriage or outside of their marriage. Some might even say, and there's many do when they apply it to this verse we're talking about, that. Adultery is any sexual activity outside of marriage, whether the participants are married or not. But buckle up, because I'm about to tell you what the Jewish law specifically says about adultery, and it's very, very complicated. Here's what the Jewish law says about adultery in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. It says, If a man commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, both the man and the woman who've committed adultery must be put to death. Now we can read that and the, I, mean, I think it's pretty clear, right? If a man or woman have sex outside of their marriage, it's adultery. Well, not quite. The way the law was written, if you are a married man having sex with another married woman, it's adultery. If you are an unmarried man having sex with a married woman, it's adultery and the penalty For both of those in the law is serious, it's death. But a married man having sex with an unmarried woman? Not adultery under the law. Check this out, Exodus 22. If a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged to anyone and has sex with her, he must pay the customary bride price and marry her. But if her father refuses to let him marry her, the man must still pay him an amount equal to the bride price of a virgin. Okay, so. Let's recap. This is sticky, okay? A married man having sex with another married woman, it's adultery. Punishment is death. If you are an unmarried man having sex with a married woman, it's adultery. The punishment is death. But if you are a married man or an unmarried man having sex with an unmarried woman, according to the law, the punishment is marriage and a fine to be paid to the woman's family, but marriage. Now, there's a lot more to this, including honestly how these laws were part of a very patriarchal and male-centered culture, and how Jesus and the New Testament really completely dismantle patriarchy like this, and, and make the spiritual expectations and the benefits of the kingdom of God equal for everyone, okay, regardless of gender. And I understand that I have dropped a grenade in the room without being able to fully unpack everything that goes along with it. But my point is that adultery, according to Jewish law, was a very specific act that, while sexual nature, had widespread community implications. So, in the eyes of the law and the ancient Jews, and honestly, still a lot of people around the world today, Adultery was the theft of something that rightfully belonged to someone else. See, marriage wasn't just a romantic covenant relationship like it is for many of us today. Marriage had economic implications. I mean, money exchanged hands between families. Marriage secured business relationships. It created male heirs through whom families could pass down their inheritance from one generation to another. And having an affair with another man's wife, disrupted all of those things. And now look, I know that to look at this in the cold light of day, you probably have a lot of questions about the implications and the application of this. And to be honest, this cultural treatment of women is very problematic for me. The language of ownership when applied to a woman is, I mean, it's just not appropriate to our world today. And so it's difficult. And and honestly, it's a problem that Jesus resolves himself in his treatment and inclusion of women. But for our purposes today, we need to understand how Jesus as listeners would have understood adultery as an attack on marital relationships, an attack on relational community. (sighs) Okay, well, since I flipped that apple cart, I might as well just flip another one, okay? So when Jesus says to look lustfully on a woman, How would Jesus' audience have understood that? Well, first, I mean, we can be pretty sure that they assumed they were thinking about it being a married woman because Jesus set the context when he compared this to adultery. And if they're thinking that this is a married woman, that this implies some level of community relationship. If a man knows the subject of his gaze as married, there's some sort of community relationship there. But there's more the Greek word Jesus used that has been translated as lust in the New Testament, it literally just means desire. In fact, the same word is actually used over and over again in the New Testament to talk about things as diverse as, as being hungry for food. I mean, for example, in talking about spiritual gifts, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 12, 31. He says, so you should earnestly desire the most helpful gifts. Same word. Hebrews 6, 11 says our great desire, is that you will keep on loving others as long as life lasts, in order to make certain that what you hope for will come true." A desire, same word, but attached to something that is positive. Galatians 5.17 says that, "...for the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh." And this last one implies, I mean, almost says it outright, that desire is a neutral vessel that we use to seek out things that can either be positive or negative. I mean, this verse even says that the Holy Spirit even has desires for us. In order to make things easy for us to grasp, I think that this word has been translated as lust anytime the translator sees a negative implication, which carries with it a sexual connotation every time it's used. But I think it's also interesting that the word for lust is also translated in the New Testament and the Old Testament as the word covet. And what is coveting? Let's go to the Ten Commandments, Exodus twenty seventeen. You must not covet your neighbor's house. You must not covet your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. So, to covet, or lust, is to have a directed and intentional desire to have something that is rightfully someone else's. So. Perhaps a better way to look at what Jesus was was saying and what his audience was hearing would be to say, anyone who looks at his neighbor's wife with a directed and intentional desire to have her has already committed adultery. Or, I mean, even to put it more simply, for citizens of the kingdom of God, coveting is the same as taking. The implication is that intentionally, and willfully desiring something, focusing your desire on something that is not ours, will ultimately lead us to the act of taking it. In fact, in the Old Testament, coveting was regularly paired with taking, as if they were the same thing and inseparable. And now, why does this matter so much, okay? Remember, this is Jesus giving us an example to clarify how his followers will live out his command to love God and each other, which means that Taking what belongs to someone else breaks relationship. And entertaining a deep longing to have what is theirs, it does the same thing. It orients our desires around what we want for ourselves instead of orienting our desires around the good of others. But Jesus is laying out a different way because followers of Jesus desire the good of others over the good of themselves. Jesus here isn't really giving us a sexual ethic to live by as much as he's giving us a community ethic. Don't engage in self-serving desires or actions at the expense of others. It damages relationships. It violates the love of others. It damages the community. It's such a big deal. Look at how Jesus follows this up. Uh, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 through 30, he says, so if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, to desire, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, because it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, obviously, this is a rhetorical device, okay? And even the way Jesus is using hell, we could talk about this another time, it's not the way we think of hell. I mean, in fact, we know this, when Jesus had a woman, who was caught in the act of adultery brought to him. He he then saved her from being stoned by the people who had caught her, right? Because the punishment for adultery is death. And Jesus saved her. And what did he say to her when he sent her on your way? He said this, he said, go and sin no more. But before you do, I'm gonna have to chop that hand off to keep you from messing up again. No, that's not what he said. Jesus extended grace and love. He's not asking you to gouge your eye out, but He is showing us the lengths that we should go to in order to avoid violating His law of loving others, of loving our neighbor. That His followers will be willing to go to extreme lengths to keep from being self-seeking at the expense of our neighbor. Now, as I close, I I think it's important to acknowledge that while this teaching may touch on a sexual issue, It is not a complete rendering of a Jesus-centered sexual ethic. Instead, it is a community-oriented, others-first, neighbor-loving direction on how we are to, to approach our own desires. It isn't an indictment of the things that we desire, but guidance on what we're to do with those desires. And I also think, listen, it's important to acknowledge that human beings were wired with attractions and desires towards each other. And God made those. Seeing a woman or man and thinking that they are attractive is not this. It's not lust. Jesus' followers are not prohibited from having natural, human, God-created desires. But we are prohibited from dwelling and focusing on desires that take from and that hurt others. And Jesus' brother James brings clarity to this in James 1.14 when he says temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Desire is not sin. Temptation is not sin. But they can lead us there. And feeding a desire to have someone or something that is not rightly yours is feeding a desire to hurt those to whom that person or thing rightly belongs. Lust is inward, self-directed desire that seeks our own good, while love is an outward-directed desire that seeks the good of others. And God's desire for us is for our desires to completely line up with His desire that we love our neighbor as ourself. So next week, we're going to continue in this because Jesus expands on the implications of desire, adultery, and, and one of the most painful and damaging breaks that can happen in a relationship, divorce. Now, if you're, if you're divorced or if you love someone who is, I can assure you that this will be saturated in grace as we look at how Jesus dives even deeper into the subject of how we love one another in his kingdom. But just a final last thought that I want to share with you is this. If you have struggled with an unhealthy desire to have something or someone that is not rightfully yours, that belongs to someone else, I want to tell you that feeding that, focusing on that, intentionally pursuing that desire is damaging and destructive to relationships. It is self-seeking and it is destructive. And I also want to be clear. That the desires that God has given us just as human beings are not all that, but an unhealthy shift towards seeking our own good over the good of others. That's lust, not love. And God has called us to be people of love. I hope you can apply that. And I hope if you if you struggle with unhealthy desire, you can surrender to God and experience the freedom that so many others have, because he will And he can set you free. Thanks again for joining us today. If you want to learn more about us as a church, get connected, need prayer, or anything else at all, head over to our website, compassbn.com.